Can you remember when the doctrine of the resurrection became real to you? For me, I was in college. I had grown up in the church, and so I was familiar with the doctrine of the resurrection. I had spent many years going to sunrise services and going to Easter services with my family, so it was something that I was really familiar with. But I didn't have a deep connection with that doctrine. I had spent some time in late high school and early college, some of those formative years of my faith in an evangelical subculture that really emphasized two things, evangelism and sexual purity. Now, evangelism and sexual purity are great things to emphasize. The Bible does talk about those. But the way that this particular culture tended to treat those two topics had a ring of guilt about it. It sounded a little bit like this. Well, you'd better do this. You'd better evangelize. Because just think about the people that will be going to hell if you don't evangelize them. Or with sexual purity, you'd better keep yourself sexually pure. Because just think about the guilt and shame that you'll feel in life. Or just think about how uh, frustrated or disappointed God will be with you. And one problem with this approach is that it lacks an answer to a fundamental question. Why? Why evangelism? Why is heaven a topic that we should care about? Why does the body matter? And for that matter, why these things and not other things that the Bible seems to emphasize, things like justice or mercy or reconciliation in the church. And because it lacked an answer to the question why, I spent more time in my late high school and early college faith being more judgmental than joyful. But when I started to become part of a Reformed Bible study and started participating in a Reformed church, the resurrection became real to me. The doctrine became real. It was a breath of fresh air to my faith. Because finally I had an answer to the question, why? Why evangelism? Why heaven? Well, because Christ was raised from the dead, and so he lives again. And there will be then a resurrection of the dead for us. And there will be a reckoning and also the promise of eternal life. Why does the body matter? Because Jesus was raised in the flesh, and the Holy Spirit will raise us in the flesh as well. The body matters to God. The body matters to the kingdom. And what about these other things? What about justice or mercy or reconciliation? Well, those things matter too because of the resurrection. The resurrection during this time became an intensely personal doctrine for me in my faith. I remember when I was in seminary once tearing up in church when we confessed together the Apostles' Creed that we believe in the resurrection of the body. There's such profound hope in that confession. The resurrection is perhaps the Christian doctrine. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity, as we heard from 1 Corinthians 15 in the Assurance of Forgiveness today. The the resurrection is absolutely central to the Bible. It is absolutely essential to Christian doctrine. It's essential to Christian ethics. In fact, I think it's impossible to overstate the value of the resurrection. The Reformed theologian Herman Bavinck says this, According to Scripture... The significance of the physical resurrection of Christ is inexhaustibly rich. 
And the evangelical ethicist Oliver O'Donovan says, Christian ethics depend upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He says this in his book, Resurrection and Moral Order, tying together this idea of moral order with the necessity of the resurrection. So we could talk for hours about the grandness of the resurrection, but not today. Today is not the time for me to wax eloquently about the resurrection in this Easter Sunday sermon. See, the resurrection is fun to talk about when things are going well. But the resurrection is absolutely essential to believe when things are not going well. The resurrection is fun to talk about. It's fun to gather with friends and gather and discuss all of the implications of the resurrection. How the resurrection connects to every single piece of life. It's an enjoyable conversation. But the resurrection is absolutely essential to believe with clarity when it feels like life is falling apart. And so the main point of my sermon today is to tell you plainly the good news of the resurrection because the resurrection is good news for bad times. Today we find ourselves in a similar position as the first disciples on that first Easter morning. They're confused. They're disappointed. They're let down. They're afraid. If you've been following the Lenten series, you've seen their swagger, their confidence going into the Passover festivities. They thought that Jesus was going to be crowned king, that the kingdom of Israel was going to be restored before their very eyes. And even though Jesus had been warning them, they didn't see it coming from the triumphal entry to the cross in less than a week. It's astonishing how quickly their world came apart. And maybe you feel like that this morning, too. For us, it's the coronavirus, that virus that's been a blitzkrieg through our sense of normalcy. Can you believe it? That only a few months ago, the coronavirus was only an occasional headline, and now it's practically the only headline. One month ago, we were still able to meet here at the church. In the space of a few weeks, we've gone from life as usual to having schools canceled, non-essential businesses shuttered, people spending their time at home sewing homemade masks for safety to go to the grocery store, and things like this. Like the first disciples on that first Easter morning, we too are confused. We're disappointed. We're let down. We're afraid. This Easter morning does not feel triumphal. And so I think we have a unique chance to press into the Easter story this morning in a new way. Because now, more than ever, we can feel the way that they felt. So this morning we're going to be joining two disciples on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It's a journey that they're going to take with Jesus. And as we watch them journey with Jesus, we'll see them move from dejection to illumination to joy. And my prayer has been for us as we witness their journey from dejection to illumination to joy, that we would join them on it. That we too would be moved to joy as we hear Jesus school us on the good news of the resurrection It's good news for bad times. 
And so with that in mind, brothers and sisters, let's turn our attention to the Word of God. You can find it this morning in your Bibles. We're going to be reading Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13 and moving through until verse 35. So please turn your hearts, your minds, your attention to God's Word that you would hear Him speak to you with clarity this morning. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, And crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes. And besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Thus far in the reading of God's word, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, what a good word you meet us with this morning. A good word about the resurrection of Christ. We hear in the text that it was your word that caused the disciples' hearts to burn within them. And we pray now that as we hear your word preached, that it too, through your spirit, would burn in our hearts. 
through your spirit that you would open our eyes as you did theirs. So that we would recognize the risen Christ in a fresh way this morning. Speak to us, O Lord. Give us strength according to your word. And the mercy to draw near to you as you have drawn near to us. Give us this now as we attend to your word. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Our text begins with dejection. Two of the disciples are leaving the Passover festival in Jerusalem to go back home. These two disciples are not of the twelve, the twelve famous disciples. They would have been within the broader circle of Jesus' disciples. And they had gone to the festival with such high hopes. But now they're leaving empty-handed. They're processing what went on. The text says that they were talking and discussing. But that word discussing, it's more like debating. The way that two sports fans might argue or debate about what went wrong after their team falls apart. They are trying to understand a great tragedy. And in this debate, a man joins them. They don't know who he is. And he asks them what they're talking about. At first, they don't say Anything. The text tells us what happened. Verse 17, they stood still, looking sad. Would you want to answer him? To speak of the profound disappointment you feel? To try to give words to a grief that is almost indescribable? You, you have felt let down before, I'm sure. Have you ever given a month to NCAA basketball, to March Madness, spending time and energy on your team and following the drama and putting up with all of the tension as you see your team get closer and closer to the championship game, only to lose in the final seconds of that game. And if not, if you haven't personally experienced that, you've seen the photos of these dejected fans. They just can't believe that their team lost. Or maybe you've been involved in some sort of political campaign. You've knocked on doors. You've handed out flyers. You've invested your time and your money into this. And you are sure of a victory for your candidate. But then come election day, the candidate is crushed in a landslide defeat. How does it feel? It's a grief that you don't really want to talk about. And it's like that for the disciples, but on an entirely different level of intensity. Because when they do begin to talk, we see the significance of their hopes. In verses 19 and 21, they were hoping that Jesus, this man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, they had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Think about it. Their Messiah Crucified in a horrific show of violence and betrayal. The one who they had followed and confessed to be the son of God. The one who had healed the sick. The one who had raised the dead. Now himself dead and buried. They're dejected. But there are some rumors swirling. They remember Jesus saying something about the third day. And some of the women who were close to Jesus are now saying something about an empty tomb. A visit from an angel. A message that Jesus is alive. These disciples want to believe. But we see in this text that the sense of dejection is hard. 
Maybe you feel that way too. Just a few months ago, life was looking good. You were making plans, and now you hear that those plans are canceled. I think of the Olympic athletes who have been training their entire lives for this Olympics only to find out that they are postponed for a year. Can you imagine the questions that are swirling in these athletes' minds? Will they be in as good shape next year? What if they lose their competitive edge? What if they get injured in another competition? What of their hopes for a medal? What about all that work? Maybe you have had something similar like this in your life, and you're trying to make sense of it now, this morning. Now, you know that God promises that all things will work for good for those who love the Lord, right? And you believe that Jesus rose from the dead this morning, but you might feel still a sense of being emotionally low. You might look out your window and wonder to yourself, does the resurrection even matter if it seems like the world is still falling apart? Thankfully, Jesus speaks into their dejection. And he speaks into ours as well. He speaks into dejection to turn it into illumination. Let's look at verses 25 through 27. Jesus says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a lesson in biblical theology taught by Jesus himself on this long hike that they're taking together? It would be an amazing experience. And in this lesson, Jesus teaches us three important things about the resurrection. The resurrection is true. The resurrection is real, and the resurrection is beautiful. It's true, real, and beautiful. First, the resurrection is true, meaning that it accords with the scriptures. And not just a few of the scriptures, but all of the scriptures, if we trust what Luke is saying. Listen to what he says in verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So he went through the entire Old Testament and showed all of the passages that promised his resurrection. Now, we don't have enough time this morning to go through the entire Bible and talk about all of the different passages that prove that Jesus is going to be raised from the dead. We don't have enough time for that, but I want to talk about four that likely would have come up in this amazing lesson on the Emmaus Road that show that the resurrection is true. It accords with the scriptures. First, it accords with Genesis 3.15. And we hold that Moses was the one who wrote Genesis. So Moses wrote in Genesis 3.15 that God is speaking to Satan, and he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This text is speaking of Christ overcoming Satan. And in his overcoming, he will suffer. The text speaks that Satan will bruise his heel. This is pointing forward to the crucifixion of Christ. But in his suffering, he will then be victorious. Because Christ will then crush the head of the serpent. And this then points forward to the resurrection. 
Genesis 3.15 is pointing us forward, showing us in shadows the resurrection of Christ. But it becomes clearer if we compare Genesis 3.15 and match it with Psalm 16. Psalm 16, specifically verses 9 and 10, which say, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. This is a messianic psalm that is ultimately pointing forward to Christ. That term, Holy One, is a messianic term that enables us to see Jesus being the one who ultimately fulfills this text. The Messiah would not suffer corruption or be left to death, but will be raised again. So Genesis 3.15 shows us that Jesus will go from suffering to victory, and Psalm 16 shows us how that victory takes place in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. It becomes even clearer when we then bring in Psalm 22. Psalm 22, which Jesus takes on his lips on the cross, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, it's a psalm about death and suffering, but it's also a psalm about confidence and life. Because after the suffering in the psalm, the psalmist says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise him. So then, and then he goes on, for he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried out to him. How will the Messiah tell of God's name in the congregation? How will the Messiah be able to lead his brothers in praise after suffering if he is still dead? Well, it can't happen. Psalm 22 promises a future for the Messiah after his suffering. Only after he is raised from the dead can the Messiah then lead his church in the praise of the Most High God. Psalm 22 guarantees the resurrection. And then finally, Isaiah 53.10 shows very clearly Jesus' resurrection for the dead, from the dead. It says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. This speaks of suffering, of the crucifixion and the cross. But then Isaiah goes on to say, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This prophecy speaks of resurrection life. After the suffering of the Messiah, he will live again. So the resurrection is true. It accords to the scriptures. And this is good news for bad times. Because we are facing some scary times. And we need some deep spiritual resources to turn to for deep spiritual strength to help us face the situations that we're in. And what the resurrection gives to us is an Old Testament that is filled with Christian promises and praises. Because the resurrection is true, because it accords with the scriptures, the Old Testament is properly Christian scripture. The resurrection ties together both the Old and the New Testament, making it useful for us in our spirituality. So we can find great strength and hope in the promises and prayers of the Old Testament. Consider Psalm 91. 
He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. Or Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous one runs into it and is safe. Or for those of us who are in times of turmoil, Psalm 42, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Brothers and, sisters, brothers and sisters, these are Christian texts. These are Christian prayers. These are God's promises to his people. They are God's promises to Christians. So we can use the Old Testament for spiritual strength because the resurrection is true. But it's not merely true like an an internally consistent story of fiction. The resurrection is also real. It's true and it is real. It accords with history. And our text this morning shows us three pieces of evidence that this is a historical fact that Jesus rose again from the dead. First, there's the empty tomb that we hear about in verses 22 and 23. The empty tomb is a historical fact that requires an explanation. Now, some skeptics, when they're engaging with the idea of an empty tomb, will say, well, can you show me which tomb? Can you walk us exactly to the place and can you point to the empty tomb and prove that there is nothing in there? Show me. But in many ways, we don't need to do that because the texts tell us. It is really no question that there was an empty tomb where Jesus was buried. Matthew 28 addresses this. To explain the empty tomb, the leaders came up with a story that the disciples had stolen the body. And Matthew says in his gospel that this was a widespread rumor. Many people believed that the disciples had stolen the body, which means that many people believed that the tomb was empty. People knew that the tomb was empty. Otherwise, they would go right to the tomb and point to the body and say, no, the tomb's not empty. The body's right there. So the tomb was empty. And it's a historical fact that the tomb was empty. People accepted it as that. And they came up with many explanations to explain it. But if we look at all of those explanations, which if you have questions about, you can come talk to me about this. If we look at all those explanations, the resurrection is actually the best explanation for why it was empty. Jesus had risen from the dead. It becomes even more convincing when we match that with Jesus' post-resurrection appearances to his disciples. In addition to the empty tomb, we have these appearances. Jesus appeared numerous times to his disciples after the resurrection. And it happens twice in our text. Jesus appears to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And then the text says in verse 32 that he also appeared to Peter. That's who Simon is in the text. And if we were to keep reading in Luke, there's another appearance. And he keeps doing these things to prove to the disciples that he had risen from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul also agrees with these resurrection appearances. He agreed that Jesus appeared to Peter. And then he appeared to the rest of the 12 disciples. Now, again, people might say, well, how can you prove that? You're just reading it in some text. How do you know that those resurrection, post-resurrection appearances actually happened? They could have just written this down and made it up. But if you're going to say that, then we need to remember that these are ancient texts 
that were written to real people. You can look at Luke chapter 1 if you want to know about that. This was a document that was written to real people that existed back then and wanted to know the truth about Jesus. And Luke is a careful historian. He embeds in his narrative things and facts to validate his work. And in our text, he names a person. He names Cleopas as a person who can validate his story. Now, we don't know who Cleopas is 2,000 years after the writing, but they would have. And they would have been able to go and interview Cleopas and ask, is this true? Did he actually appear to you? See, the early church believed these appearances as proof of the resurrection. And they weren't fools. It was just as hard to believe in a resurrection back then as it is now. These things don't happen all the time, but they trusted the testimony that they heard. Which brings us to the third piece of historical evidence for the reality of the resurrection. A trustworthy word. All knowledge depends to some degree on faith. Do we trust the person telling us these things? And we see that in every aspect of life. Knowledge is based in part on faith. And ultimately, the person telling us these things is God. We have a divinely inspired text telling us about the actions of the risen Jesus. And Christians find the word of God to be a trustworthy word. So we have a trustworthy word. Speaking of appearances to the disciples that could be historically validated. Speaking as well of a historically validated empty tomb. And all of these pieces of evidence culminate to this conclusion. The resurrection is real. It's historical. It's a fact. And this is good news for bad times. Because Jesus really rose again from the dead, that means that we will also rise again from the dead. Brothers and sisters, this text promises us the end of death and the beginning of eternal life with Christ. We who trust in the truth and the reality of the resurrection can say with confidence, Jesus lives and so shall I. We can face hard times with the confidence that the resurrection means that death does not have the final word because it is real. Jesus really rose again from the dead. So the resurrection is true. The resurrection is real. And the resurrection is beautiful, meaning that it accords with our innate human desire for eternal life with God. Friends, we are not temporary people. We were made for eternity. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, He has put eternity into man's heart. And this is why we recoil at the thought of death, at any suggestion that this life is all that there is. It hurts to hear if, if, to hear of death or anything like that. We recoil against that because we have a longing for eternity. And when we meet the answer to this longing, it is beautiful. Here, verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us 
while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. It's beautiful because they were hearing about the longing, their great longing being fulfilled. They would be able to live again eternally with God. You may remember a video that was popular a few years ago. It was about a young girl who was deaf, and she had spent her life trying to have different hearing aids, but at one point in time, she was able to get cochlear implants. And the video is when she's trying out that cochlear implant for the first time, and when she heard her mother's voice for the first time, she was so incredibly joyful. First, she breaks out into this huge smile and deep laughter, and then she breaks down in tears, tears of joy. It's a beautiful video. And it became popular because everyone recognizes the beauty of having your deepest longings fulfilled. Your deepest desires happening. The beauty of healing. The beauty of restoration. Brothers and sisters, the resurrection is beautiful. Because it assures us that our longing for eternity with God will be fulfilled. And this is good news for us in bad times. You will live again. You will live again. Let that sink in. We face such loss these days. I've heard so many people say recently that they feel like they're just wasting so much time because of the pandemic. Either you can't work and you want to work, or you have to work in environments where you're less productive. Grocery shopping takes longer. It seems like everything takes longer. There is so much wasted productivity, so much wasted time, and we long to spend our time well. And I get it. If this world were all that there was for us, it would be a huge problem to waste this much time. If all you had were 80 years to live or something like that, then yes, you need to make the most of every single second. You've got to make the most out of every opportunity. You can't waste any time because this is all that you've got But we have more life than simply 70 or 80 years. Brother, sister, you will live again. You will live again. And you will have eternity for all of the things that you had hoped and longed for in this life. The resurrection is true. Meaning that we can use the Old Testament scriptures to bolster our faith. The resurrection is real, meaning that we will really be raised again. And it is beautiful. It speaks of the restoration of all that was lost in the fall. As Andrew Osanga sings, he will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. That's why I love this quote by S. Joshua Swamidas. He's a professor at the Washington University School of Medicine. And he writes, The question of the resurrection is more like an opportunity to fall in love than a scientific inquiry. There is evidence, but the resurrection cannot be studied dispassionately. If Jesus really rose from the dead, it reorders everything. Just like falling in love, it changes our view of the world. Friends, the Easter text this morning is an invitation to fall in love with the risen Christ. As we encounter the risen Christ, we move from dejection to illumination and then finally to joy. The resurrection brings us joy. 
There's a joyful intimacy that comes from knowing the Lord, and we see that in this text. Even when they don't recognize him yet, the disciples have a truly intimate encounter with Jesus. There's intimacy in Jesus' methods of questioning. Listen to the way that he engages these disciples. He wants to know what they're talking about. He wants to know what's on their mind. He wants to know what's on their heart. He wants them to talk about their pain and their doubt and their dejection. Now, he knew what they were talking about, of course, but what he's doing in this text is inviting them to unburden their souls to him. There's intimacy in this question that he's doing. There's also intimacy in the patient forbearance and instruction that he gives. Yes, there's a rebuke in verse 25, but it's a loving one. And I I think when, when we read his rebuke, we can hear his tender voice, maybe a smile at the corner of his eyes, even as he's saying, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe, because he loved them. They were slow to believe, but he didn't leave them. He didn't get frustrated with their lack of insight. He patiently walks them through all of the scriptures. That would have taken time. He's patient with them. There's intimacy in his instruction. And finally, there's intimacy at the table of fellowship. Read verse 30 and 31 with me. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. Now, this was not the Lord's Supper. Jesus is not going through the motions of the Passover meal with these disciples. It was a common meal, a common breaking of the bread. And during this common meal, they start to catch on to something. So there's something in this, the mannerisms of this stranger that they've been with. They, they see the way that he's doing this breaking of the bread. There's something about the cadence of his prayer. And then the way that he gives the bread to them, there's something very personal about it. And all of a sudden, they recognize him. And the Holy Spirit opens their eyes. He gives them sight. And so they, at the table of fellowship is where Jesus' true identity is given to his people. And it's really no surprise that this would be the location for Jesus to show his risen self to these disciples. Because these common meals were places of intimacy between Jesus and his disciples. It's where they got to know him, to spend time with him, really just to be with him when he would serve them just like he served them now. There's a joyful intimacy in this text. And that joyful intimacy is on offer to you today. Jesus wants to know you. He wants to know what's on your heart. He wants to know what's on your mind. He wants you to tell him the things that bring you joy or unspeakable grief. He wants to know. Yes, he he does know what's going on, of course. But what he's doing is inviting you to unburden your soul to him. He's inviting you to be intimate with him in this relationship. And Jesus will then patiently guide you through life's challenges. Just like these disciples, we are often slow to believe. Yet Jesus doesn't leave us. He's patient with us. He instructs us along the way. And he invites you in this journey of life together. He invites you to be with him. 
just like at the table of fellowship with these disciples. And today, you can have that type of intimate encounter with Christ as he feeds you through his word and as you commune with him in personal prayer. And as you read his word and pray, remember Jesus can minister to you because he's alive. The resurrection allows us to have this joyful intimacy with Jesus. He is alive and he will do these things. He will be with us because he is alive. And this joyful intimacy that we can have with Jesus then leads to a joyful sharing. Consider this quote from Norval Geldenheis. They know that he is risen and that he lives as the Messiah, the promised Redeemer, And this certainly immediately brings such a light and joy into their hearts that they have an irresistible urge to give others also a share in their joy. Their joy needed to be shared. If you've ever seen something great happen, then you know that joy must be shared in order to fully experience it. Maybe you were one of those lucky people whose team did win the NCAA championship game. And think about that. Or think about the time that your favorite hero on a favorite TV show does something incredible. Get that idea in your mind. And then imagine looking around for someone to high five and there's no one there. It totally drains the moment of joy. There is nothing as discouraging as looking around to celebrate and finding no one. Joy has to be shared. And we see that in the text in verse 33. They rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Immediately they went back. Those seven long miles retracing their steps that they had just come from to share the joyful message with the rest of the group. And they arrive in Jerusalem and find that that group is now gathered all together, marveling together that Jesus has appeared to Peter. And now these disciples have a chance to share their testimony as well. Jesus is risen. It's a joy that needed to be shared. And so this Easter, brothers and sisters, share your joy. It is even more important now, I think, with the social restrictions that we face. The New Yorker said in one of its articles, this is the loneliest holy week ever. Just remember the victory of Easter. It's just like that moment that you wanted to give a high five to someone and couldn't. You can feel the joy leave the moment. Fight that today. It's easy to let the joy drain out of an Easter where you're not able to celebrate with your loved ones or do some of the traditions that you enjoy. Fight the temptation to let the Easter joy go. Share your joy with someone. Pick up your phone. Get a loved one on the phone. Someone that shares with you the joy of the resurrection and spend some time talking about how great it is that Jesus has risen from the dead. Or fire up a video chat with one of your friends and spend some time talking about the joy of the resurrection together over a video chat. Spend maybe even some long hours figuring out how the resurrection applies to all of life. Try to suss out all of the ways that the resurrection matters. This morning, stoke your joy in the resurrection by sharing it. And if you have the opportunity, share it with someone who doesn't believe. Remember Geldenheis' quote. 
they have an irresistible urge to give others also a share in their joy. That's us this morning. We have the urge to share our joy with someone. And those who do not know our joy need it this morning. They need some good news. And we have some to share. So can you remember when the resurrection became real to you? Maybe it was some years ago and you fell in love with the risen Christ. But maybe because of life's turmoils, you lost sight of that original love that you had. Or maybe the topic of the resurrection became much more of an academic subject than one of deep spiritual significance. And if that's the case for you this morning, then fall in love with Jesus again. He is risen from the dead, and he wants to be with you. Or maybe it's this morning. Maybe this morning, as you've heard his word, you have encountered the risen Lord for the first time, or in a new and deeper way than before. Share that with someone. People need to hear your good news, how the resurrection has become real to you in your life. But whatever your story is, if you believe in the resurrection of Christ from the dead, share that joy with someone today. Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. And this is good news for bad times. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the truth of the resurrection. This marvelous thing that you rose Jesus from the dead and that he lives again. We praise you, risen Christ, trusting that you are alive and hear our prayers even now. And you have sent your Holy Spirit to be with us in this period of time where we can't be with you in the flesh. Oh, we long to be with you in the flesh, Jesus. We long to see you again. And until we have that opportunity, please do continue to minister to us through your word, through your spirit. Commune with us, Jesus. We praise you for your resurrection life and the resurrection life that you offer us. Grant us joy this Easter morning. And bring your resurrection life to bear in this broken world. You say that you make all things new. Make this world new into your image. O Lord Christ, we pray in your holy name. Amen.